Timothy, well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for being with us on a cold, wet Sunday of 2019. Uh, you could have been many places, but you decided to come and be with us. So we're grateful. Uh, happy 2019. We, uh, if you didn't know, as a church, celebrated our five-year anniversary on Friday, uh, January 11, 2014, was our first public worship service here at Hayti. And uh, and so we've celebrated uh, this whole weekend and for a while, and we've got a lot to be thankful for. God has been gracious to us as a church for the past five years, um, and I'm really glad you're all here. If you're new this morning, uh, I hope you feel welcome. I hope others will make you feel welcome. I hope you keep coming back. Uh, journey with us. Be honest uh, about where you are and this uh, process of maybe you're checking out Christianity. Maybe you haven't been around the church in a while and you're just coming back. So we're, we're glad you're here. I hope you keep coming back to be with us. You know, entering into 2019, we thought what better way to start the new year than by diving in to the Old Testament book of Judges. This tantalizing, exciting, confusing, strange book of the Bible. You know, our hope is that God would use this book to help us understand more who he is as the great judge, the great deliverer of his people and who we are as his people and how we might faithfully live in our current culture and society. Our passage that we're gonna look at this morning, it's a little bit like the Durham History Hub or the Durham Visitor Center. If someone was brand new coming to Durham, moving to Durham, I would encourage them to go visit the History Hub or the Visitor Center. It helps to tell the story, the fuller story of our city the people that have been involved, the happenings of our place. A visit to these two places would help someone get oriented to Durham. And this morning, Judges 2 and really the larger section all the way to three, chapter 3, verse 6 functions as a sort of visitor center. It provides the necessary preview for understanding what's happening in the rest of the book of Judges. There is this repeated cycle that we're going to see in this book. God's people rebelling from what God has called them to, the experience, therefore, of oppression and, a, and uh, as a result of their rebellion, the people of God crying out for deliverance, God then providing a deliverer or a judge. We have to remember that a judge is not a courtroom judge, but a, a deliverer, a savior of God's people. And then over time, rebellion ensues again. And it's this repeated cycle, and actually Judges goes from bad to worse in regards to this repeated cycle. At the heart of the rebellion, I think, is the reality that God's people have not fully rejected God as the true God, but they also have not fully accepted him as the one true God. I think the heart of this is half-hearted discipleship. And it cannot last. Ultimately, either all of our life is given to God in wholehearted, grateful obedience, or none of it is. And so we're going to jump in to Judges chapter 2. Your bulletin says verses 3 through 19. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 19. Uh, it's on the screen uh, behind me. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, as is our custom, when we give attention to the reading of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19 of Judges chapter 2. This is God's word. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. 
As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed this, the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harries in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They, so they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would illumine your word by your spirit. May the spirit of God speak to our spirits that we might see Christ, so that we might be transformed, so that we might worship you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. I, I don't know if you've seen the recent string of AT&T commercials that have been running for a few months. Uh, I saw one just the other day, a woman who was sitting next to her husband who's waiting for surgery uh, and the doctor to walk in and the wife asked the nurse who's at the bedside, have you ever worked with Dr. Francis? And the nurse says, oh yeah, he's okay. And they, they say, just okay? And, and then Dr. Francis enters the room and he's yelling to someone in the hallway, uh, just who got reinstated, or just guess who just got reinstated? Well, not officially, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. And then he asked the man, hey, are you nervous? And he says, yeah. And Dr. Francis says, well, me too. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Another AT&T commercial, uh, the man walks into a mechanic and he asks, are you guys good with brakes? And the mechanic says, we're okay. He's like, just okay? And the mechanic says, well, we have this saying, if the brakes don't stop you, something else will. All right, and each commercial ends with, it's not okay to be just okay. It's not okay to be just okay. And the point of the commercial is that AT&T is, is determined to be the best. AT&T is all in. They're not halfway in. They're not okay to be just okay. Right? Who wants halfway anything, right? If you're playing a sport, you play with your whole heart. 
not half-hearted. A good coach that sees half-hearted effort will put you on the bench. If you're dating someone, how would it feel if the person says they're just okay dating you? If you have a job, you give half-hearted effort, I think you're going to hear from your boss. If you're married, how would your spouse feel if someone asked, do you love them? I love them okay. No, right? We love with our whole heart. And our passage this morning is about how God is a passionate God who wants all of our heart, not just part of it. That he's not okay if we're just okay towards him. I gotta remind you of the context of Judges that I gave last week. Israel, uh, the people of God, have, they've entered Canaan, the promised land. God has called them to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And I spent much more time addressing that last week uh, of the reason for this. But just as a reminder, this was not vengeful. Uh, God wasn't calling people to do this for economic reasons. This was not an ethnic cleansing. This was for spiritual reasons. The purpose is that Israel would live in the land, the promised land, enjoying unhindered fellowship with God, enjoying the blessing and the rest of being with him. But Judges chapter two, verse two, tells us that they have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. That instead of breaking down the altars of Canaan, instead of being faithful to their covenant with the Lord, they have entered covenants with other gods. They've bowed down to the altars of other gods. Here's a really important thing for us to note. They did not disown Yahweh. They still believed in the one true God, but they coexisted with other gods. They mixed belief in Yahweh with the beliefs of their culture. They were half-hearted in their faith. They didn't fully reject God, but they also didn't fully accept him. And the end result is that they were idol worshipers. They abandoned, verse 12, they abandoned exclusive loyalty to the one true God and gave half of their hearts to the one who redeemed them and the other half to the gods of their culture. Now, I know this word idol is a strange word. If you've been around our church, we, we've used it. But it is an odd word, idol worshiping. Uh, maybe you think of what I saw when I was in Lhasa, Tibet in 2001, uh, when I saw an 80-year-old man prostrating himself around the Patala Palace, the center of Tibetan Buddhism, with scraped-up knees and bloody hands. I saw four- and five- and six-year-olds following their parents, prostrating themselves around the temple. Maybe that's what you think when I say idol worship, bowing to a statue. So bowing to the altar of Baal can seem kind of far off to us. Bowing to some statue, we wouldn't do that, would we? Well, we have to think about it. Why might Israel have done this? Why are they tempted to enter Canaan and bow to the altars in Canaan? Well, Baal was the God of fertility. And Baal's counterpart, the female god, was Astaroth. And the belief was that when Baal and Astaroth had sex, they would be fertile and bless, and bless the worshipers with fertility. So if you wanted children, livestock, good harvest, you would worship Baal and Astaroth. And the way you would worship is that you would go to the temple and you would have sex with the Baal prostitute. And you would pray that this would compel Baal and Astrot to have sex and possibly reproduce. And it would then bring the blessing of fertility upon you. 
I don't know if you can see how a Saturday night worship service at the Temple of Baal might be attractive to the Israelites, how it might be just a little tempting. We might not be a culture that has temple prostitutes and us being tempted to have sex with them, but we sure are a culture that are products of the sexual revolution. Sexual freedom is for all, and our culture worships at the altar of sex. So can't we believe in God and determine what we want to do and be sexually? Can't we have casual hookups and maybe the occasional adulterous affair? Can't we look at pornography and have a wondering eye and mind and believe in God? Our culture says be as free as you want to be sexually, and that is attractive to many people. Israel would worship at the altar of Aphrodite, the god of beauty. Uh, we, we would never do that, would we? We're a culture of plastic surgery. We spend tons of money on gym memberships and diets and clothes and eyewear. Body image is monster, right? The issues of anorexia and bulimia are extremely high in both women and men today. What about the altar of Artemis, where they would take their children and put them in open flames of fire, sacrificing them to Artemis for the sake of prosperity. That's crazy. We would never do that. What about the temptation, even the cultural affirmation of aborting a child because the child might hold you back from what you want to do in life? And I know there's no one in here that sacrifices their family for the sake of material success and success at their job guilty. The truth is, every single one of us are idol worshipers to the core. If you're a Christian, we can believe God is great, but then we mix belief in God with the gods of our culture and our faith coexists with other faiths. And we think that we really just need more than who God says he is or what God says he'll provide. And whatever that more is for you is your functional God. The love of a man, a good-looking wife, successful children, thriving career, wealth, celebrity, pleasure, ideology, achievement, can even be your dog or your perfect house or your athletic team. Rebecca Pippert in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, she wrote this, whatever controls us really is our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Idol could be translated many Lord, the many Lords that we serve. And so the first thing I want to look at this morning is the picture and power of idolatry. Let's look first at the picture that Judges 2 gives us. And the picture it gives us is that idolatry is adultery. Israel was to be faithful and in an exclusive relationship with the God who had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And listen to this picture that Judges 2 paints. Verse 2, they're breaking covenant with God, entering covenant with other gods. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord. They went after, they pursued other gods. Verse 17, they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. An adulterous and whoring people. That's a provocative picture. It's true to what scripture is saying. The power of the idolatry is seen in verse three. It says, the God shall be a snare to you. 
These idols trap us. They put us in their grip like an animal trapped in a snare who never saw it coming. We find ourselves trapped and bound and enslaved. And whatever it is, we have to have it. We can't say no to it. We become addicted to it. That's why so many people work so hard and sacrifice family and friendships and health at the altar of career. That's why people give themselves to certain relationships that are constantly and continually destructive to them. Idols trap us. Verse 17 gives us insight into the power of idolatry even more. Verse 17, they hoard after other gods. They prostituted themselves. So when we serve an idol, we come into an intense relationship with it. It's not casual. It uses us but doesn't care for us. It promises everything and delivers nothing. And in giving ourselves to it, we become completely vulnerable to it. David Foster Wallace knew this to be true. Uh, David Foster Wallace was one of the most respected essayists of the past 50 years. He wasn't a Christian, and Wallace eventually hung himself, and I've referenced this commencement speech before. He gave this in 2008 at Kenyon College, and he titled the address, This is Water. Listen to what David Foster Wallace wrote. He said, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's the power of idolatry. The Israelites and us today We can say we believe, but then we can buy into the gods of our culture, hook, line, and sinker. And we're trapped and we lie in bed with the gods of our culture and the result is that the church looks just like the culture. There's no distinction. We become absorbed into the culture, but God cannot be one of many. He's not the first among equals. The one true God full of love, grace, and truth seen in Jesus Ask us to surrender all of our life, every area, not just some. Now, in the face of our idolatry, God reveals himself in Judges 2 by giving us two pictures and two promises. And they're intended to draw us back out of our idolatry to to wholehearted worship to him. So let's look at these pictures and promises. Now, the term covenant, it's used all throughout Judges. God is the one who has covenantally entered into relationship with his people. He's entered unilaterally. His power, his promise to redeem, to rescue, to save, and to lead his people to the promised land. Now this term covenant, we're most comfortable using today in marriage. The image of husband and wife. It is the image that runs throughout scripture describing God's relationship uh, to us, his people. So God covenants and he promises 
to be the faithful husband to us, his people, the bride. And marriage is exclusive. And what we see in the face of our idolatry is how God responds when we are unfaithful. Look at verse 14. As a husband, verse 14 shows us the type of husband our God is. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them. In the midst of our whoring and adultery, the anger of the Lord is kindled. It's the picture of a jilted husband. He gets angry. God feels, he has personal emotions over our love of other gods. And that is a good thing. If a spouse cares little that their spouse had an affair, it says as much about the spouse sinned against as it does the spouse who sinned. If a husband is unmoved, unaffected by the unfaithfulness of their spouse, is there really any love there? You see, the jealousy of God is a good thing. God's not being petty. God is being loving. His anger is an explosion of love. He wants all of us. And he comes after us, the text says. He pursues us. Now, we also see a picture of God as a wonderfully forgiving husband. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. When Israel cried in distress, God heard their cry and he forgave them and he provided a judge, a deliverer. So we have these two pictures. God as forgiving and compassionate and God as jealous and angry. And we see these two pictures echoed in the two promises in chapter two. Look at verse one. God promises, I brought you from Egypt and I will never break my covenant with you. I will be faithful. Chapter two, verses two through three. You've not obeyed my voice. So I say, I promise I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your side. We have a picture of a jilted, angry husband and a forgiving, loving husband and the promise that I will never leave you and the promise, well, you've forsaken me, therefore I will give you over to your gods. How do we resolve what I think can often feel like an irresolvable tension? Is God holy and just asking for wholehearted devotion or is God gracious and compassionate extending forgiveness when we fail? Throughout scripture, we see this tension. On the one hand, God is holy and just and he cannot tolerate or live with or bless evil and God is loving and he's faithful and he will not leave those who he's committed himself to. So does God give up on his people or does God finally give in to his people? I think the answer to this question helps us understand how we might live with wholehearted devotion, not half-hearted. So try and follow me here. A pastor, a friend of mine, Rankin Wilburn, is, has been helpful here. Rankin says that today in churches, we can hear two different messages. We can hear one preacher get up and say, just believe the gospel. You don't need to do anything. Just believe. God is gracious and he's compassionate. And then we hear other preachers say, God wants us to surrender all. And he calls us to radical discipleship. God is holy and he demands holiness. And these can feel like two different songs that are playing in our heads. I've definitely heard these two songs during my 28 years of being a Christian. I've read and been influenced by people like Brennan Manning and Henry Nouwen. 
who've wooed me to the God of grace and mercy, who's slow to anger and compassionate. But I've also read and been influenced by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and my seminary professor, Richard Pratt, who say God calls for wholehearted surrender and that half-hearted surrender treats God's grace as cheap. And so which one is it? Grace that asks nothing from us, which I believe leads to apathy, or radical discipleship that demands from us, which I believe exhausts and wears us out. How do we strike the balance? Well, I don't think balance is actually the right word. I don't think it's 50% God is gracious and 50% God is holy. I think it's 100% God is gracious and 100% God is holy. Both songs on full volume all the time. We don't turn one down and turn the other up, then turn this one down and turn this one up. Both songs, full volume, all the time. And the songs of grace and holiness, full volume, meet in the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus welcomed the prostitute and the outcast. And Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Undiluted grace and uncompromising obedience meet in Jesus. See, the key to living wholeheartedly to God while not being crushed by our sin, but rather boasting in the grace of the gospel is Jesus. This is the beautiful answer that resolves this tension and is given to us in the whole New Testament. As Christians today, we have the whole gospel story. See, in Jesus, the unconditional love of God is freely offered to all who will trust and follow him. And in Jesus, the conditional love of God is met by the obedience of Jesus. In Christ, we find the freedom to accept ourselves without being proud, and we challenge ourselves without being crushed. Leo Tolstoy, one of the world's best-known authors ever, author of War and Peace, Anna Karenina, help us, he helps us understand the danger of not living into and believing this gospel uh, of God's holiness and God's grace that meet in Jesus. Tolstoy, if you know, became a Christian later in life. And this is what Tolstoy wrote. He said, I've lived in the world 55 years. And after 14 or 15 years of my childhood, for 35 years of my life, I was a nihilist in the sense of one who believed in nothing. Five years ago, I came to believe in the doctrine of Christ. And my whole life underwent a sudden transformation. And the thing about Tolstoy is that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, particularly moved him. Yet by many measures, he could not live out the demands that Christ put upon him. And his wife would complain about Tolstoy. She, she, she has written, he showed very little genuine warmth. His kindness didn't come from his heart, but it came from his principles. And Tolstoy was deeply troubled by his inability to live up to the Sermon on the Mount. He took the, the call seriously to love your enemy, to not repay evil for evil, and he didn't treat the grace of Christ as an excuse for sin. But the tragic thing about Tolstoy is that he did not know how to listen to both songs at full volume. He was honest about the gap that existed between him and the call, but it crushed him. It defeated him. And he died alone in a train station, an unhappy man. So is God holy and just? Or is God gracious and forgiving? Yes. In the person of Jesus Christ, the tension is resolved. 
For God's holiness is displayed by the justice Christ received by dying on the cross. By his stripes, we are healed. And God's grace is displayed by the perfectly obedient son of God, laying down his life so that he who knew no sin might become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, what's true of Christ by faith in him becomes true of us. Holy, loved, forgiven, adopted, heirs to a kingdom that will never perish. We are in him. And so we live it out. We walk it out. So let me give you two points of application as we close up here. Believing this gospel in Christ, I think, calls for wholehearted following. That every area surrender to him, he wants us to, to surrender all unto him. And so I've got to ask you two questions. Maybe better put, ask yourself these two questions. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Second question, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? And where the answer is no, there is the area of our lives and our hearts that we've opened up to alternative gods. Here's the second point of application. What's at stake and what I've been talking about this morning is not just us, but the next generation. Verse 10, look at verse, I could have preached a whole sermon on verse 10. Verse 10 says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. Israel's half-hearted following of God led the next generation to not know the Lord. This word know is not knowledge. They knew about the Exodus. It's, it's no experience. They weren't intimate with God. They didn't experience God as their husband. So was this on the children for turning away or was this on the parents for not raising them well? Sure, it's both to some degree, but I think a weight has to be placed more so on the previous generation. Show me a generation of half-hearted following and I'll show you the next generation that leaves the faith. We pray every week for our children here. We take serious raising our children in the understanding of the gospel of Jesus. And I want you to know singles, you play a part of that. Marrieds without children, you play a part of that. Empty nesters whose children have left, you play a part of that. Parents of the children, you obviously pay a part in that. Our children's future is at stake by how we follow and trust Jesus. And what the generation needs to see from all of us is that we're not okay to be just okay following God. They need to see us in genuine relationship with God boasting in Jesus that leads us to be consistent in our behavior that leads us to be wise about how we navigate our culture, that leads us to be warmly personal and honest about our relationship with Jesus, which means we confess our unfaithfulness and our brokenness and our children see us turn back and boast in the grace that's offered to us. We rejoice in Christ, who is our faithful husband, who comes after us and calls us to love him with our whole heart. The marriage to God that is offered to us by faith in Jesus is not a marriage where it's okay to be just okay. 
We get to live and be a part of the greatest marriage the world has ever known. Wholehearted love from the Father with wholehearted love from us who follow. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would bless, Lord, your word and not mine. I, I pray now as we come to the table, you would meet us, that we would encounter you, that we would know you. The gods that we've worshiped this week, we would leave behind. The altars that we've bowed, bowed down to this week, we would leave behind. And we would come to this table and we would receive Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.